I'm not a big fan of the South African team being in the European Cup. The trick is in the name. You can see that one part doesn't fit into the other. I do think they've brought a huge amount of style and some fantastic rugby to Subscribe it. to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Welcome along to the Welcome along to the Sunday pay-per-view here on Off the Ball. Plenty to sink our teeth into on this Sunday. Uh, particularly a lot of coverage on this day from the fallout from the Grand National and the protesters at Aintree yesterday afternoon. Uh, there's plenty of really good GA coverage. I think it's been possible to focus this weekend because we've got two quarterfinals in the Ulster Football Championship that there's a lot of coverage which is focused particularly around today's game between Tyrone and Monaghan and the sweeper keepers which we'll have a look at. Um, some of the fallout from Lee Chin and the racial slur which was shouted at him last Saturday at a charity game in Tipperary and understandably a lot about the Premier League Arsenal uh, where Liverpool go from here potentially the great red reset is across quite a few of the papers today as well and we'll be looking at an excellent interview with Irish athletics legend Katrina McKiernan as well let's take a look at what's making the back pages then today on the back of the Sunday world you've got cop out and Jude Bidfail could bell toll for Jorg so this is the fact that Liverpool have reportedly pulled out the race to sign Jude Bellingham who have been their number one target as they look to rejuvenate their midfield this summer. Substandard decision by Ten Hag Hertz Reds is Paul McGrath talking about Manchester United's collapse against Sevilla midweek in the Europa League quarterfinals. A Man City close on Arsenal by Kevin Palmer. That's Manchester City winning at ease against Leicester 3-1 yesterday and Erling Haaland now has got 32 Premier League goals for this season uh, which is the same record well equals the record for 38 games and he's now just two behind Alan Shearer and Andy Cole who holds the record record for when there was more than 20 teams in the top flight in England. Elsewhere we're looking at the Grand National of course this is across all the papers today but a very clever headline at the back of the Sunday World Fox evades protesters to take the National. That is Sligo man Derek Fox after he became a Grand National winning jockey yesterday on Cork Rambler who went off his favourite and won the race. Looking at the rest of the back pages then for today. First Bell is again focusing on Jude Bellingham and who is going to sign him this summer. Manchester City are seen as the favourites according to Simon Mullock who's got an exclusive in the Sunday Mirror Sport. Also an interesting one on the back of the news that broke on Thursday which is that the Premier League are to ban shirt sponsors on the front of the shirt for gambling companies and Odegaard Janssen, the former Bolton uh, Barcelona and Chelsea striker said that he lost over £6 million uh, gambling during his career so he's among those who is welcoming the ban from 2026 of shirt sponsorship at the front by gambling companies uh, though they will still be able to sponsor other parts of the stadium and indeed other parts of the shirt from 2026 on there are currently eight Premier League teams who've got a shirt sponsor at the front with a gambling company as things stand on the Sun Sport today Evans Ake which is Evan Ferguson going off injured uh, during Brighton's win against Chelsea his manager Roberto De Zebri said after the game he's likely to be out for a couple of weeks but they'll have to wait for a further assessment on that uh, so Ireland striker facing Cup semi-final KO for next week is the bad news for Evan Ferguson Sly Fox wins the National also looking at Cork Rambler's victory at Aintree and no light in the tunnel for Lamp by Dan King uh, Chelsea again beaten and massively outplayed yesterday by Brighton ahead of playing Real Madrid in the Champions League midweek where they're already 2-0 down from the first leg uh, also in some of the rest of the papers today let's have a look at the back of the Sunday Times Scottish National Party is looking at Cork Rambler's victory Liverpool step up interest in Bayern midfielder Graven Birch as they move on from Jude Bellingham and Cullen hugely excited by Neen Arbor's Leinster switch so it's an 
announced that Jack Nienarber, the current head coach of the South Africa team ahead of the World Cup, will leave the Springboks after the World Cup to effectively replace Stuart Lancaster on the coaching team at Leinster. And David Walsh, on the back of the Times today, is writing about Erling Haaland, not about his goals. Everyone's talking about the goals he scored this year, but he's talking about the pass that he made for Bernardo Silva during the week against Bayern Munich, showing that he is not a selfish striker. Uh, plenty of Gaelic games on the Independent. Back of the Sunday end though today, you've got uh, Derry on fire. Champions set out their stall in Ulster, defending the anglo Celt uh, for the first time this century. They eased to victory yesterday against Fermanagh. Uh, US Group's late bid to buy stake in Manchester United. Tom Morgan's story at the front of the paper. An American bidder has now emerged uh, who could potentially come in as a third bidder as time starts to tick down on the Glazers selling Manchester United. Eamon Sweeney has gone for silence of accusers, speaks volumes, uh, talking in support of Vera Powell on the back of Ireland's uh, two friendlies in the USA where she was um, accused by the National League over there of mistreatment of players, which of course Vera Powell um, has strongly denied ever since. And Craig Breen loved rallying and rallying loved him back. Looking back at Craig Breen, who uh, very tragically passed away on Thursday in Croatia at the age of just 33. And we've got the mail on Sunday as well. They don't get racing. Legend McCoy vents fury as protesters disrupt the national. That was AP McCoy speaking on ITV's racing coverage, which is carried here in Virgin Media as well, on the back of the protesters holding up the entry Grand National by 15 minutes. And then another interesting one as well, which is the story of Martinelli, who's got 14 goals in the Premier League for Arsenal this year. Brazil backwater to world's best strike force. They look at Bukayo Saka, but particularly on Martinelli, who was seen as very light in Brazil and not seen as a player who was potentially going to make it at the very top. And his ride and rise and rise at Arsenal over the last couple of seasons. Delighted to say to have a look at the papers today. In studio with me I've got Conan Doherty now of The Independent. How are you going Conan? Hey Will, how are you? And we've got Jason Byrne from The Sun as well who's with us uh, virtually by Zoom. How are you going on Jason? Morning lads. Nice things. Good. Um, the papers, it, look, there's probably a mix of a few different things here. I didn't get to talk about them because they're bang smack in the middle of it. The Irish women's team have got a lot of coverage in various papers as well, uh, particularly on the back of the comments uh, during the week and that article uh, which was in The Telegraph, which is the report that uh, apparently somebody in the RFU at a club function had said, who gives an F about women's rugby? And then the defeat that happened in Parma yesterday, which has left Ireland staring down the barrel of potentially a wooden spoon, particularly with England, to come next in the tournament. Uh, we've a lot of good G coverage because of the fact Conan I think when it comes to the GA coverage they were able to focus down for this week if you look at the schedule for next week there's a start of the hurling there's a lot of provincial championship on this time around there was an opportunity to maybe tease out some of the stories particularly today around Monaghan and Tyrone yeah, well, they also wanted to give the opportunity to give Derry the, the spotlight, you know, in the opening weekend as they, as they forego on their journey now to the All-Ireland. Um, yeah, very slow weekend, especially after it started so quickly last weekend, obviously, with everything that happened out in New York as well. But it was a good opportunity, as you say, to take a pause. And I think some of the stuff that we've gotten, especially from Malachy Clerken in, um, in the Irish Times, has been brilliant. And it's a good opportunity to really just mark some of these careers it could end up being some of the last seasons for some of these players as well like Conor McManus It's a good interview for him to get yeah. you want to kick off with that Conor McManus who has been so crucially important to this Monaghan team albeit there's three or four new players coming in for championship he's still seen as so central to what's going to happen at home with this afternoon Yeah well and, and of course he is because I've heard like, some of the criticism of Monaghan has been that they're still relying on the same players. Of course they are, because not only is it a small county with a small pool, but they produced some of the best footballers that we've seen in our generation. And of course they would still be relying on them. And I always find it interesting when you know when players hit the age of, I don't know, McManus is 35 now, but sometimes when players hit 30, 
people start saying, well, you know, they're not going to be around forever. We need to start replacing them. And it's, you produce this player as an 18 year old to get the most out of him the whole way through. And McManus is still one of the best. Like the, the stats bear it out. The, the fact that he's, he's looking into his 60th consecutive championship start, as Malachi Clerk and talked to him about today um, against Tyrone, is, is phenomenal stuff. The way he's done it, the, the class with which he's done it, the clutch with which he's brought as well. And Clerk has a great line in it about McManus's hips. He's never been injured, obviously, for a championship game. If you're getting 65 appearances in total, 60 consecutively, you're doing something right. But but he said his hips are a junior minister in a coalition government of Conor McManus. He abuses them as much as he wants, knowing that they'll never quit on him. And that's just a lovely, lovely like, sort of line to, to sum up. Not how Conor McManus treats his body, but how his body it's treats so versatile, him. Like, yeah, yeah, his body's always there for him. And Conor McManus is always there for Monaghan as well. And this is the thing, like, once again, and I know it's not new analysis, but Monaghan haven't been relegated. But you look, I looked at them at the start of the year, even when they had lost their first couple of games, and I thought... Just don't write this team off. <laughs> They've got loads of firepower. And Vinnie Corey's obviously Mr. Monaghan, but he's got them all working as well. If you can get firepower working, that's basically been the Tyrone model for 20 years. Like, it's all these class players who will do the job for the county. And I, I have a sneaky feeling, I'm not going to predict Monaghan to win, but I have a feeling they'll run run Tyrone a lot closer than people maybe think. Jason, this is a good get for Malachi, isn't it? On game week, we were uh, talking here on Friday about the fact that, you know, Quigley was speaking to the um, GA Social on the BBC and eventually they had to come out very quickly and say, you know what, he's not been dropped because of what he said during the week because he was so loose-lipped in his comments there. It is actually a hamstring injury. Um, but to get McManus on the eve of a huge championship game for both Monaghan and Tyrone is a good get for Malachi today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, but you know what, it doesn't surprise me because that's just the way Connor is. Um, you know, from a media point of view, he's an absolute dream. There's been many times uh, I've gotten him on the phone, albeit maybe not this close to a big championship game, but you could ring him there on a Tuesday and he might be at work or something, but he would always get back to you. Um, you know, he would always stop uh, outside the dressing room after a game, win, lose or draw. And, um, you know, he, he's just a great, great fella. I remember like a few years ago, uh, a friend of a friend was... In a, in a sticky situation health ways and you know my friend asked me to get maybe a few intercounty players to send send them videos to kind of give them as well wishes and give them a bit of a boost and I remember texting Conor McManus and I think within 10 minutes he'd, he'd replied with a 2-3 minute video um, you know and th- those are the small things that, that he would do regularly that you don't really hear about and you know we're always promising about what he does on the pitch and you know kicking the 1-7 against Mayo to keep morning up and stuff like that and talking about his age and that but you know that's it's the mark of a man that he is off the field and he's always just been he's always just had that grounding about him and that bit of uh, approachability uh, from a media point of view in a way that, that doesn't surprise me that he spoke to Malachi and um, you know it's a, it's, a, it's a great great piece and it doesn't really surprise me at all but it is sad to see that maybe the, the BBC social had to come out and, and clarify that uh, that Sean Quigley wasn't dropped over the comments he made on, on that podcast as well which is a great listen to him and the fact that he was injured, um, you know, the whole thing's very sanitized now and can be very, very hard to access these players. So, so kudos to, to Malachi nonetheless. It's a, it's a great piece and a great chat with a, a brilliant, brilliant uh, fella and, and, and an exceptional footballer. And, uh, you know, as Conan mentioned there, he is 35. He's not going to be around forever. And I expect him to have a big, big day in Hilly Park today. 
not to get too far off the beaten track here, Jason, but when it comes to the Quigley interview as well, it sparked a tremendous amount of debate because of the fact that, in a way, he's spoken a little bit old school, where he's saying that pretty much, in his opinion, there's plenty of athletic footballers out there who could put the head down, work really hard, and become an intercounty footballer. But maybe some of the skills of the past have been lost. It's probably opened up a huge debate, I think, over the last week about you know, this idea that players are becoming robots or this idea that maybe some of the ingenuity that would have been there in the past is now being coached out of the game. Yeah, it's a very good point, and it's a it's a stick that's often used to beat Ulster football with. But I think it applies to the whole country now, and um, you know you see it there in underage teams, you know from minor level up. It's just it it, it is very robotic, and everyone's kind of mirroring the same thing. And Philly McMahon kind of addressed the same thing in his Irish Independent column yesterday as well. Um, you know that the level of Ulster football can be slapped on on any team now, particularly at senior and county level, like. Quigley didn't come out with those comments just for the crack. Like he meant it. That's how he feels. And fair play to him for opening up and, and speaking about it. And he shouldn't be punished or slapped for that. And I don't think he is. He is. You know, a lot of people really enjoyed that interview and really commended his honesty. And you know, if that's how he feels, that's how he feels. He he does have the raw talent. That's the thing. He he does have. He he does deserve to be on an intercounty team. But he's obviously witnessing this, and you know, he's spoken out about it. And you know, fair play to him for having having the guts to do it. Um, but there is definitely like a lot of the fundamentals of the game aren't being coached properly, especially at underage level. And we're seeing that transfer into senior intercounty teams now. And you know they're hitting the gym maybe more than they should be working on some of their their basic skills. And you know, if, like I can definitely see where he was coming from. I haven't watched like a lot of club football around Donegal last year as well, where where I am at the minute. It's it's gone very robotic, and you know it's all systems and positions instead of just trying to work on the fundamental skills of the game and it's it's uh, it's swept the whole country to be honest as far as I can see I don't know what Conan thinks but I'm sure he wouldn't be too far from disagreeing with me there yeah well even if you go to the analysis at the Derry Fermanagh game yesterday and they were also bang on but they're so critical like Fermanagh had dared to open up a little bit and then it's, it's what's, what's the analysis it's, it's how stupid are they we all know what Derry are going to do you go back to 2011 this is 12 years ago Armagh, my reference points are Derry, but Armagh opened up against Derry in the Ulster semi-final. Derry suddenly gets to the first Ulster final and God knows how long, since since 2000 actually. And and Joe Brawley of all people was saying how stupid they were to not play a sweeper in front of Owen Bradley and Mark Lynch. If Joe Brawley could go back and look at himself there now, like you know, but but this that that that's that that doesn't help either. Like you know, so that's it's stupid to play football in a certain way now. And people are largely right as well, but it's not going to change things in the grander scheme. No, especially when I saw during the week um, people were complaining after witnessing a stats guy going around at under 12 goal games uh, during the week. Like that is, no, that is the absolute extreme, obviously. But there is that feeling as the coaching trickles down along the way, the players at a younger and younger age are now being prepared for the elite level of Gaelic football as opposed to going out and enjoying the game. Yeah, and look, we've all sort of been experienced or exposed to those stats that are being read out at underage games and it's just going in one ear and out the other and normally it's read at half time and they just, just spit the pile of stats at you and they don't mean anything, they're not they're not using them to to change anything for the second half, they just give you all the stats because it's, it's not cool to do but that does happen, I mean, club football mirrors eventually what intercounty football is doing and then underage football mirrors what, what senior club is doing and I find it interesting now at the minute that Senior intercounty is actually very much man on man because again everybody's attacking and everybody's defending. 
and that's nowhere near what the club level's at at the minute. But the club game, what I'm looking at, sometimes looks a bit smarter than the inter-county game because I'm thinking, why would you want to go man-on-man against some of these players? They'll, they'll just take it past you. They're too good one-on-one. And that's that's almost a shame that I'm looking at it that way. I'm looking at football thinking, geez, do not leave yourself one-on-one in, in a game against these players. like that. That would be criminal. But the club game, I feel like, is better set up than the county game at the minute. Well, we were debating here on Tuesday and look, I think the genuine feeling was the way that Clare played last weekend and the way many of the teams who came out on top uh, awfully against Longford went really defensive in the second half, maybe played slightly against their instincts, but went out in a way to win a championship game. New York and Leitrim was enjoyable because of the fact that there wasn't actually that type of um, defensive setup there. There were plenty of mistakes and there were goal chances that were missed. And it doesn't matter to Leitrim now because they're out of the championship, whether they entertain the neutral or not, or whether New York was a great story. But in a way, I actually enjoyed that game because it was almost the antithesis to a lot of what we saw on the Sunday. Yeah, but now I'm having a lot of introspection here where I'm looking at myself thinking, I looked at that game and thought, this is crazy. <laughs> <What's going on?" laughs> like the, the analysis I came away from that game was, this looks like a training match, really enjoyable. But every Everybody's running everywhere. Everybody wanted to get on the ball. And that's something that we probably shouldn't be criticising them for. It just looked a bit shapeless to me. And when I say shapeless, it's just a different shape to what we're used to. Everybody get back and everybody get forward. This was just a, a case of a player who got the ball. They kicked it. They ran after it. They were all excited to do something. With the, and I think the 3G pitch probably helped with the pace of it as well and the crowd being in on top. But very much felt like an in-house game. That was a very enjoyable in-house game. But, but maybe, again, that's a good argument because I'm always reluctant to write the the death of football because we've been having this conversation for over a decade now but maybe that's just a good example of you know sometimes there are pretty good games and when they come around we should just enjoy them Yeah, look, Jason, we're re- I reckon we're, I'm definitely going to really enjoy the game this afternoon because I reckon this is going to be an arm wrestle between Tyrone and Monaghan, two Division 1 teams going up against each other. A lot of stakes in the first round and we know how important Ulster is to all the teams who are uh, competing in it and they will probably look at the opportunity for a really, really exciting semi-final against Derry for the winners this afternoon as well. Um, Mick Foley has written about Tyrone and I like the line that he used at the top of his piece, page 16 of the Times today, which is that this is now Tyrone's time to prove that they still have it. So there is that lingering doubt maybe about last year in their defence of the title, whether this Tyrone team, Jason, can get back up to where they were in 2021. Yeah, and Mick makes a great comparison here to what happened at Donegal in 2013. I remember leaving Crook Park that day. I think it's the only time I've ever left the Donegal Championship game early. Um, <laughs> Mayo were absolutely beating them out the gates and the whole thing had just totally collapsed after 2012. And Jim McGuinness was addressing the group that day and addressing the media that was this going to be their legacy and they came back to reach the All-Ireland final again the next year. Uh, defeating Dublin, albeit losing to Kerry and maybe could have snatched the replay but uh, Kerry kind of done a dunny ball on it and outfoxed them at their own tactics. But that, it's kind of a very similar uh, crossroads where Toronto are at right now. Um, you know, last year it just totally fell apart for them like they you know the the title defense was just so limp. Um, I know they lost seven players, but like if you if you look through the starting team, they won the All Ireland in twenty twenty one, and the starting team from today, like I think Conor McKenna is the only real notable absentee from the starting fifteen. Um, Manny Donnelly starting inside today as well, and they've they've got really Kahneman in the bench, and you know slowly as the league went on this year, they did seem to kind of, you know, Mark O'Shea's kind of got a bit of overlap with Mick's piece in, in his column in the, the Mail on Sunday today in terms of her own having a cause and he feels like they, they have that cause again. And, um, you know, the side of the Kerry jersey coming home a few weeks ago got that spark out of them and 
you know, they just seem to evolve the wheels turning properly again. Like, like you know, people were accusing their 2021 title of being a fluke, but, you know, that's very, very unfair because what, what they, how they dismantled Kerry in that, in that All-Ireland semi-final was an absolute masterclass. And, you know, there was that fascinating Ulster final at Pro Park against Monaghan as well, uh, which is, of course, the rematch today in Oma and, you know, the, the fascinating deal between the two goalkeepers, which which ties in as well to, to Dermot's face in the Sunday Independence. So, um, you know, they seem to have that bit about them again. They seem to have that kind of fire back in the belly that just wasn't there last year. Um, you know, losing to Derry in Oma, fair enough, and the Ulster Championship, Derry were well set up there to take that scalp. But the, the nature of that defeat against Armagh and the qualifiers would have really, really stung. And I'm sure they would have enjoyed uh, sending Armagh back to Division 2 this year on the back of that. So, yeah, it's like today is their time to answer those critics, and that's the way that's the way Mike finishes his piece. And you know they have to let their football do the talking now after you know all the noise and discontent that they had to deal with on the back of that flat championship defence last year. But you know we saw so many times under Mickey Hart when Tyrone were dealt with adversity. You know, obviously losing Cormac McAnall, the tragedy of that, and to keep coming back and to win the two thousand and five All Ireland after that, and to do it again in a way. Um, you know, there's no better team to kind of have a cause. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what they produce today. But they need a big, big statement. And you know, if they do produce that, it's like that semi final against Derry will be absolutely fascinating because Derry are just a completely different animal now. And the Rory Galler winning Ulster last year was huge for them, and they want to go that extra step now. Uh, just seeing Rory yesterday, he loved going back to going back home to Ennis Gillen and, he had and no problem celebrating in front of his own people whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, he, no problem with that whatsoever. So, yeah, today will be, be absolutely fascinating. Might be one for the purists, but again, the role of the goalkeepers is going to be huge as well. Uh, I'm sure the two boys will take huge um, courage from Oren Lynch's point yesterday at Brewster Park too. Colin, you can come in nicely on that one. Um, I don't know whether you want to come in on that point firstly or whether you want to come in on, on Rory Gallagher because Rory Gallagher spoke to us after the game and what I thought was quite interesting is we're talking about like, oh, the pressure of championship and now you've got a big few weeks coming up getting ready for the semi-final. He said actually he almost sees going to games as a breakaway from life itself. Yeah, he said that's how he relaxes. I go to football, that's how you relax. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'd probably be the same, although I'm not managing these teams. And like, I do think that's a form of relaxation. That's that's probably the most present he ever is. They talk about mindfulness. He's on the pitch, roaring and shouting at every single one of his players about what they have just done. He is nowhere else. His mind is not thinking about work. It's not thinking about any other worries. It's just thinking about getting that ball from one end of the pitch to the other. And, and that that's probably the thing about... Rory Gallagher as well I mean we're not going to get into a championship structure debate here but I was looking at the Dublin the the league final that Derry were in and you know they were walking wounded that day they were, they were without McCaig and McAvoy and Glass went off and they were reshuffling the team and you were thinking, you know, of all the years, this is the one now to like Derry have won the last real Ulster Championship. Maybe that's the way I would put it now, like you know. But your title, not mine, go on. The one that really mattered, they won it. But you know, now they can afford to go out. They're, they're guaranteed to be in the last sixteen. Take the break, you know. G- get your team reset. You're like, don't be struggling your way through this Ulster Championship. And there we are, two weeks later. Connor Glass is in the middle of the pitch and he's limping off, and Christian McCaig is waving to be brought off. And but Gallagher just sees the here and now. He wants to win every ball never mind every game that's all he focuses on and I think it's a healthy thing really um, I, I would probably if I was if I was in charge and I never will be would be thinking a bit more long term but I can't really 
I, I can't really disagree with the job he's done because it works with this group of players as well. It might not be for everyone, but he's really gotten a response. Like, I never thought I would see a Derry team respond. And the celebration, I mean, that, that just shows you how all in how invested this man is not just in Derry but like in, in the game that he's watching the team that he's managing like the, I don't think I would ever have the courage to do that in my own back garden like you know if you were if I was going up to Derry to manage another team and they scored a goal I wouldn't be roaring and shouting and turning around to the crowd I would probably really enjoy it inside but I wouldn't be letting the whole county know how much I enjoyed it uh, it brings us around very nicely to the modern goalkeeping debate because I know that you did a video on this for The Independent not that long ago so I'm sure this is right in your wheelhouse is uh, Dermot Crow's piece which stretches across pages 8 and 9 of the Sunday Independent he's looking at two goalkeepers who have been in many ways I guess revolutionary in the way that teams can set up in Rory Began and in Niall Morgan it's been often copied maybe not as well as those two over the last few years uh, but these are two very much innovators and I thought was very interesting in Dermot's piece which is that he was talking about an interview that Niall Morgan had done the year yeah. before last where he said he just kind of went for a stroll in training to stay involved yeah. and then Mickey Hart and the selectors looked at him and went actually you know what he could be a useful force further out the yeah. field 100% I highlighted the same thing and just it goes on to talk about the Kieran McGinney um, Paul Courtney thing in our Maswell because I remember Paul Courtney when he was up at Queen's he was just an unbelievable midfielder it was him and Charlie Vernon in midfield suddenly I see him running around with no gloves on against Cavan and, and goals for our and he was he was just playing like a sevens goalkeeper but yet again it was I think it was um, Patrick Morrison who was the Armagh goalkeeper at the time as well he was saying it wasn't that Geezer had asked him to come out the field he, he just did it himself and Geezer ran with it and, and this is the thing like you could never imagine if you went back eight years ago or before I suppose Began and Niall you know before Began and, and these boys came in like they, they are by far the best at it not Niall Morgan and Began but if you had the conversation with the managers before that and said, I'm thinking about doing this, they would just say, no, no way. And coaches generally don't like something until they see it works. <laughs> so I'm not saying go out and show them it works, but once you show somebody it works, then they will usually buy into it. Like they just need the proof. How often do if you think about the corporate world as well? Nobody wants to do anything until you give them a proof point. Show them that actually this is sure fire. There's no risk involved. This is going to work. And like it's probably been for good and bad. The keepers all over now are trying it, and it's worth trying out. But not every keeper is going to be as good at it. Like you know, Niall, Niall Morgan the way he does it he's basically a sweeper in front of the full back line he's cutting out ball that's going in because he's so fast so nimble he reads the game so well Bagan's a bit different and that he's a he's a playmaker and I remember that same interview that Morgan done on the GEA social and he had said something really stuck with him one of the Tyrone management team said to him you're not Rory Bagan stop trying to be Rory Bagan and that always stuck with him but but he, he, I think he developed his own way of doing it they actually do play a bit differently and they're both so supreme at it but the, the piece that you're talking about that I did it was focusing on the live goalkeeper doing it against Derry Peter McStravick and, and they they have now almost an extreme though he's pushing up on opposition kick yeah and since then Derry are doing the same yeah. <laughs> doing the same and actually Owen Rines did win a kick out now the analysis I'd done against Live is that he was pushing up but he wasn't interested in winning the kick he was just going back mm. he wasn't trying to compete why the hell would he be caught around there but Derry are a bit more daring in that sense it's funny for a conservative team and a defensive team Derry leaves themselves open in a lot of set plays so um there's opportunity there for other teams but I think Live are now in their third iteration their third outfield player trying it and it's a debate I think that people are having all over the country is is it easier to teach a goalkeeper how to play outfield or is it easier to teach an outfield player to play in, in nets and I actually don't know the answer but I think I'm sort of leaning towards 
no, it's sort of, I think Began and Niall Morgan are two extreme examples as well at the other end of the spectrum because one of them is an outfield player who's also a good goalkeeper in fairness and one of them's a pure goalkeeper. But I'm leaning towards feeling like if you played an outfielder in goals, what what are you really missing? How many top-class saves do we see, really, You know that stops surefire goals? I don't know if there's that many. Normally when a player gets in, he buries it or it's a bad miss. Like that, That's the way we look at it. How many big catches do we see right in, underneath the post I think an outfield player could do that anyway Ethan Rafferty can do that better than anybody he's a top class top class midfielder so I wonder if you could teach somebody to kick the ball out and that sounds like I'm degrading that act that's a very hard thing to do yeah. but if you could teach them to do that teach them the positioning teach them how to communicate with the defence I think that might be more beneficial if you wanted to use that player coming out from the back what do you think, Jason? I mean, some of the stuff in my mind story when the comparison was made to Loud is that Mickey Hart is a common line in this and he's seen what can be done when Morgan does it and therefore maybe he felt I can empower my goalkeeper to do this if he adds that skill set to the team. Like, you're probably, if you are lacking someone maybe who has the experience between the sticks, if you bring someone in who is very good at fielding, very good at kicking and distributing, you could potentially add an extra player when you're trying to break the opposition down. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting one Well, like, can, you know, like he obviously identified this with with Morgan when he when he was Tyrone manager ten years ago. Like and like I remember seeing Stephen Cluxton playing for Parnells in a club game around seven or eight years ago, the harmless league game. Like, you know, it was after he'd won in a, maybe the twenty fifteen All Ireland in Dublin, I guess. And like he was in the half back line and he was just the absolute engine on the field and he was just driving everything and in terms of distribution he was just a complete link man. He was like man of the match by a mile. Um, so like, and I know he's he do, he's done that for Parnells nearly all the time, and that he very rarely played in goals for them, especially in the, the latter stages of his career. Like so, you know, it's like if, if a goalkeeper's a baller, then then why not? Like you know, like Mayo have a have a kicker now with Colin Reek. Like he, you know, he's going to be a huge asset to them. He's definitely hasn't got the. You know the ability like Morgan and, and Began in terms of coming out the field, but he is slowly but surely starting to get a bit braver in, in some of the games that we've seen. Um, you know, the, it, like there's always that risk element as well. You know, you, you don't have to ask Gordon Lynch about it. Um, you know, if you if you brought up Damien Comer's name to him, but like it's just it, it can be such a weapon and it's proven. And like you know, like as, as pointed out in Dermot's piece, you can see Began and Morgan marking each other at some stage today. You know. <laughs> Uh, just like you know, they were they were tackling each other in that twenty twenty one Ulster final at Pro Park, like, and that's just the way things have gone. And fair play to Orton, uh, yesterday for kicking that point and all bringing it up now for the second time. But you know, I, I couldn't help but smile. He, he backed himself and you know got in the middle of the play, and when he saw the shot was on, he took it and he yeah. planted it over the bar. It was a sweet, sweet score. Got the point from the edge of the D as well. It wasn't like you had to do something spectacular to put it over the bar. It was the gap yeah. was there, and he went through. Yeah. There, there is one point, and I think the Galway game last year, the Derry Galway semi final, is worth pointing out. It wasn't Orrin Lynch who lost the ball? It was actually Connor Glass who lost the ball, but Orrin Lynch is way up the sideline somewhere looking for the ball. But yeah. but so often, what happens? I, I, I'm amazed at how often players are. They, they play safe a lot of players play safe to pass the ball around then the goalkeeper gets it and he's the one with the bravery he's the one with the gumption I'm going to try and kick it in here I'm going to try and kick a long range score I watched Derry in that game against Galway hold the ball for over two minutes and then Lynch gets it in the sideline and thinks you know it's me Shane McGuigan's giving it to me and now I have to I have to try to shot it was like Shane McGuigan didn't pop it for you you're in a worse position to, to have a shot but yeah so there's something there's a bit of teasing there to figure out for goalkeepers you know you don't have to make the play all the time and the player doesn't always 
always have to give it to the goalkeeper either. I wanted to bring it around to the athletics as well because you both picked this out straight away. I kind of left you a blank canvas when we were uh, messaging earlier to see what stood out for you in the newspapers today. And um, Carl Denny's been writing quite a bit about Rashid Adelecki and breaking her two records overnight in the United States. Uh, but also, I think he's got a lovely um, two-page sit-down interview here uh, with Katrina McKiernan, uh, one of the greatest marathon runners that this country has ever produced. Um, Carl has subtitled this as "From a shy teen to the best female marathon runner in the world, running game." Katrina McKiernan so much and also one that stood out for me Jason in this piece too uh, was the highlighted quote over on the second page which is behind the quiet shy and unfailingly polite facade was an athlete who was who had to be selfish she's not proud of that and it's kind of outlined very nicely by Carl at the start by taking a quote from uh, Roy Keane from the Tommy Tiernan show and Katrina almost reflecting on her reaction to watching the show as well that we've this lovely woman who's pictured in the middle of school children in County Cavan but behind it there's this very very tough athlete who is incredibly driven in the background yeah and like just just like you mentioned there well like that opening sequence of Roy Keane sitting in front of Tommy Tiernan and, and saying that when he when he stopped playing football he didn't miss it. Uh, Katrina followed it up with saying that's not normal. Um, you know, and like Tommy didn't press Roy on that on the night and, you know, everyone watching probably was mad for him to do so, but like that's that's kind of what she's talking about. Like in a you know, it's twenty five years ago since she was she was one of these marathons and just some of the times that she was getting and there's a great insight actually like when it goes back to her school days and she's saying that you know she was always striving to get those standards and if she didn't excel in certain subjects she really beat herself up about it and it really affected her and that um you know running just always made her feel good it made her feel at peace you know thinking about nothing else and um you know she always just wanted that approval all the time and that's probably why she went back in her later years as well she wanted that approval again you know she gets into a lot of deeply personal stuff here as well you know about the breakdown of her marriage and you know there's so many ups and downs of her career and you know trying to just constantly fill that hole of ambition and you know just as a as a competitive athlete like and, you know missing out in the olympics um you know that's you know that's obviously a touchy subject for her you know after she was just excelling in all these records and you know it's, it's an in- interesting the way the piece wraps up as well as she often thinks what would what might have been had she you know, I had access to all the modern technology and the different running shoes that they have now that probably would have knocked uh, a few minutes off some of the incredible times that she got in, in some of those marathons. Like, and you can draw the comparison with Keen as well. You know, she finished up in 2004 when she was just 34. Um, you know, she was just, she was just absolutely exhausted. Like, and, you know, she talks about that, that record of two hours, 22 minutes, 23 seconds. Uh, still stands as an Irish record, but she, you know, she was very quick to mention that she made Dimmer, the the Mayo native in Australia. Um, you know, she she beat that, and even though she ended up being cruelly outdone of representing Ireland, she represented Australia, and she's adamant that she holds the record. Like, so she's got that humility about her as well. Like, and hands up, I wouldn't have known, I would have known very little about Katrina McKiernan, but this piece is just brilliantly put together by Cahill and, and no, no better man to, to describe about athletics than him about, about one of the best if not the best we've ever produced 
Yeah, like, Conan, when it comes to the end of her elite career, effectively, 34 in 2004, mm-hmm. by her own admission, completely exhausted by the decade that had gone before. And it's set up very nicely by Carl in the piece that she's right up there in podium places in European cross countries, going really well at the world cross country, you know, clocking all these fantastic times where, in many ways, a marathon runner sometimes only peaks in their mid to late 30s. No way Beijing should have been there for her, but she felt her body was wrecked her family starts coming into consideration that sometimes sport isn't absolutely everything because we kind of have this perception that everything is tailored around an athlete just competing and being successful yeah. on an international stage as opposed to all the other things that are happening in the background and this is where I, I do wonder if the Roy Keane thing was totally a lie I know Roy Keane is a shell like you're never going to get inside it he's always going to just give you the thing that will push you away as quickly as possible or they give you something funny because usually that pushes you away as well And but there are some parallels as Jason says like the fact that she did buy out before what you would consider the, the, the cardiovascular peak more than anything as well like whatever amount of uh, miles she had well, Pauline Curley ran for Ireland in Beijing past the age of 40 exactly. at the next Olympics yeah. so Katrina should have been well placed at and, 38 yeah and Elliot Kipchoge as well is, is, is coming like, <laughs> I don't know where his prime is going to end like you know but it hasn't ended long past 34 so there's there. I do think when I think about Roy Keane's career I, I wonder did he I'm looking for a better word than fed up but was he fed up not being the best because he was always the best and Keane was Keane was an amazing footballer sort of lost now to posterity that we just think of him as a, as a breaker somebody who broke the play up and he did the job Keane was unbelievable if you watch like I don't need to preaching that he converted here but the way he found space the speed of him like how nimble he was across the ground players could just give him any type of ball in midfield and he would go find it like the way the defence could just push it into space and Keane would take it on and then when that he wasn't able to do that anymore when he wasn't the box-to-box player. He became the best holding player in the world. And then suddenly it's all taken away from him and he probably just thinks, ah, like, I, I don't want to be crawling along here now. Like, and, and Tommy Tiernan could have pushed him, but where would that have gotten him? Like, he pushed him on so many other things and it was it was for nothing, really. King just kept pushing him away. But, yeah, so it's interesting when I look now at McKiernan's career and, and I think about... The ambition, like that—that's what it is. Like that, it's total ambition, just trying to be better all the time. And she probably still hasn't in her in her running life. But do you know what they say? Youth is wasted on the young. Like I, I do think, yeah, I think sport and excellence is probably wasted on the ambitious because McKiernan, Keane, these people never really just stopped to enjoy where they were at and, and that's the paradox that, that, that's why we love it that's the beauty of sport we we sit back and we watch these people continue to strive but because they're doing that they don't stop and think well I'm, I'm really doing this because the minute they do that bang it's over it's you know and I always remember Roy Keane's remember the documentary back in the day it was Roy Keane as I see it as he was still he was still a player had it on VHS still have it can't, can't get it working anymore obviously but um, but he always talked about the United fans coming up to him after the 99 Champions League final I don't care if we, if we don't win anything else ever again and Keane in his classic Keane way just said well there's next year we can win next year and that's the thing and there's, there's obviously so much truth to that as well and that's the way McKiernan's career was too and it must be so hard to reckon with when that finishes when that's over 
where do you go from then? Because you spent your entire career pushing, 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 pushing. And yeah, it's something that I, I don't want to say thankfully we'll never have the experience, but um, I won't. Um, Jason, I sometimes you wonder about that though when it comes to people still being able to run. And you've got Katrina, you mentioned the fact that she still enjoys doing it for running stay, sake as opposed to being for competitive. It's actually when it comes to team sports, I think Roy Keane is a very interesting comparison there. Where Keane uh, definitely said to us at our roadshow a few years ago as well that with the exception of a few kickarounds that he's had here and there for the best part he doesn't play football anymore he's never been tempted to go back out and play fives he's never been tempted to go do astro he cycles a bit he goes for a few runs he pucks the ball around from time to time but football has never really stayed in his life as something to actually do post retirement at all when he easily could have done so yeah definitely um, I was there that night in the road show you were talking about and it was there for the he done the overlap podcast with, um, with Gary Neville and the lads in the, in the point a few weeks ago as well and he just, you know, he, he said that his exercise now is just walking the dog. That's that's what clears the head for him. Um, just brisk walks with, with the dog through through his, his home in Cheshire. So it's, uh, yeah, it's it's hard to believe. Like, I think, like, judging by his book as well, um, when he went up to when he went up to Celtic, and I think he didn't want to, definitely didn't want to go out as maybe a disheveled Roy Keane who was getting the runaround in, in Scotland, you know. Um, you know, they had that famous cup defeat I think, against Hamilton in, in his first game and it was kind of welcome to Scotland after he, he bowed out like his, his last Man United game was against Liverpool at Anfield and then there was the, that explosive exit and you know there's, there's so many ups and buts around that great career as well like you know he still hasn't mended his relationship with Alex Ferguson and Gary Neville would have said <clears throat> as well that you know Keane was always there with Ferguson on the field um, so the two of them just always went in tandem so, uh, like, there's always that case of what if, and you know, Katrina has that in her own case with, with the Olympics and a few other different things. But the Olympics seems to be that case of what if around her. But just such a phenomenal career and life of achievement, and you can see where she got it. And you know, I, I really enjoyed those paragraphs when she spoke about her school days and when subjects frustrated her. Like, you know, she always wanted approval. And, running gave her that and that's why she went back to it again and it was just a really really brilliant piece really really enjoyed it from start to finish yeah it just goes to show as well Colin, how important the Olympics is to an athlete because I remember talking to uh, David Gillick a couple of years ago during yeah. lockdown and he said um, it was always a killer for him that he was such a good athlete at European Championships particularly before Olympics that he always felt he was going to be competing for an Olympic medal he became an Olympian was disappointed with his performance at the Olympics and his now wife had to convince him a few years later to actually go and get the Olympic tattoo which is generally a rite of passage the minute you come back yeah. you get the rings tattooed yeah. somewhere on your body it took him a while to come to terms with it and now a decade on at this stage he still says the proudest achievement he has is actually being an Olympian as opposed to the medals that he has the Irish records that he held being an Olympian on reflection was so so important I think that comes across with Katrina here as well that it is the ultimate goal for every track and field athlete is to actually go to an Olympics. Yeah, like it's almost a sore point. Yeah, as Jason says, she, she joked that don't want to talk about that. I didn't do much at it. But then there's also the cruelty of coming into Sydney and she just gets injured. And that, that's the thing as well. It's so fragile, the Olympics, because it's every four, four years. years yeah. yeah. And if you're doing as many miles as she's doing, going from middle distance to a long distance runner, like it's you're going to get injured somewhere along the way and you just have to hope that it's not in the build-up or at the event, at the at the Olympic event when it's when it's only so fleeting as well. And yeah, and you're 
career, your career peak, especially if you're going to leave at 34, you're not going to get many opportunities. But there was a piece that uh, Paul Kimmage did as well. He was given out about the day that Sonia O'Sullivan took Parry Harrington off the... I didn't expect Second Captain's TV show <laughs> from nearly a decade ago to come up with a Kimmage piece, but here we are. Yeah, it was a strange idea, but I, I did read it all and I enjoyed the little journey back, even though it was only eight years ago. But um, yeah, Shane Lowry wasn't too happy at Parry Harrington being put off, but I thought... She had to take somebody off, and everybody on there was a top ten list of like if she took off Henry Shefflin, you'd be giving out stink. If she took off Morris Fitzgerald, I'd be giving out stink. Somebody had to come off. She took out Parry Carnes. She put in Marcus O'Sullivan. Like put in a four-time Olympian, like you know, a three-time world champion. So this is like it's just sort of depends on what sport you follow mostly as well. But of course, you're saying about how revered the Olympics are. Sonia O'Sullivan growing up looking at somebody like that and what they had done that's that's huge it's massive so not to get into an argument about whether or not Parry Carrington no, should we, be we, on the we, Google we could be here for the rest of the hour yeah. if we decided who the 10 should be on the uh, sport wall but look it's one of those things these are remarkably subjective we did sporting Mount Rushmore's for every county yeah. during lockdown when you're trying to find any content you possibly can with no live sport <laughs> and I remember Cork being an absolute S-fest when yeah. it was done because there's legitimately I would say in Cork particularly seven or eight people who deserve to yeah. be on that Mount Rushmore and it's very difficult to make an argument to take one of them off and someone will straight away straight away turn and say why is Jimmy Barry Murphy not there dual star <laughs> he did everything for the county you know as a manager and as a player have him there um, how could you possibly take Christy Ring off you know one of the most well known athletes yeah. in the country over but still there's international athletes like Roy Keane Sonny O'Sullivan wow. I don't know how you can ever rank their achievements against each other really yeah. you know how could you possibly leave Ron Nogara off um that's the difficulty but that is the wonder of the debate so I think Kimmage gets the point very well that all of these are remarkably subjective uh, but also making the point that a guy he reveres in Potter Carrington should be right up there yeah. the Irishman Rushmore no matter <laughs> yeah. what Harrington's actually interviewed with Dermot Calise on the section across from there as well which I think is, is a pretty interesting piece I mean it's, um, it's something we can discuss a little bit if you want but um, Jason he talks to uh, Harrington Galise about himself but also quite a bit about Rory McIlroy and we've probably all been having the post-mortems and all of us uh, golfers who struggle to hack it around 18 holes will turn around and say ah Rory you know just seems to be some kind of psychological issue around the majors now and particularly around the masters he's passed up 3 million quid uh, to play at the RB Heritage this week uh, again hugely disappointed to come in in tremendous form and then not to make the cut and then Harrington who by his own admission within the interview with Dermot Galee says I have been accused of overthinking throughout my career of overdoing my swing of all the different technical aspects he reckons that Rory McIlroy just needs to kind of calm down and that a major will come with the way that he's playing yeah um I read the piece, but a lot of like golf wouldn't be my forte by any means. Well, but you know, I, I did manage to catch the end of the Masters last week, and Rory was well out of contention by then. But he just seems to put so much pressure on himself uh, when it comes to Augusta in particular, and that's what kind of maybe leads to his downfall. Um, I don't know if you'd agree with that or not, but like he just seems to just put so much demand and pressure on himself. It seems to be just something that he's reaching out for and trying to grab all the time. That just kind of slips out of his grasp and you know for it to happen so early for him would have been a massive blow and you know like fair play to him like he was speaking to the media when he was going up through the fairways and between holes and stuff like that and you know it was really really fascinating and, and insightful to see that but you know it would be hugely hugely disappointing for him but like the, the mental aspect of it and you know the spotlight that's always on him in particular not just from an Irish sense but a global sense is huge and I don't know how he deals with it like and the weight that's constantly on his shoulders you know I don't I don't know how he manages to, to keep 
continuing that, like just just to reference Katrina McKiernan again, like you know, she said that when she was at her pump and everything else, she was so glad that Sonia was nearly taking all the spotlight so she could just focus on her own thing and kind of stay in the background a little bit when it came to the media. But like the likes of Rory now, like there's how many hundreds of cameras on them from phones alone each time they go through a hole and all those eyes on you like it, oh, it, it beggars belief how, how they do it and let alone how he does it with the spotlight that's on him Colin I'll ask you one question away from the piece itself but we were wondering about this week about McElroy is it a wise decision or not when all that pressure is there and everyone is talking about you know you're waiting a decade to get your next major you haven't completed the Grand Slam yet you know 2013 you let a master slip away in the back nine to actually put an airpod in and talk to CBS in the middle of your round is he a guy who should have said no to that? Like at the time I thought it was a wise decision you know I thought oh here we go here's Rory looking relaxed you know? he's, he's trying a different approach when you don't win, when you don't make the cut, then it's you know, we can all say, you know, it's not a, a wise decision. I think at the risk of venturing into judging personalities, which is exactly what Pori Harrington was given out about. And he's, he's right. Like, again, I have another moment where I'm like, mm, is he talking about me there? Where it's like, you know, most of you guys aren't in a position to judge these players' personalities, but that's how golf analysis goes. And, like, that's the beauty of golf as a spectator. Like, you, you sit back and, and you watch it, and it, it's all these... Every single shot is a shot that every like, every one of these professional players would make if you if told them to just go make it. But when you have to do it over 18 holes, over four days, over all that pressure as well, then with all the eyes on you, you're not going to make some of the shots and you have to deal with the, the comeback. But I think I'm going to venture into analysing Rory's personality now, but he, it's sort of, he had gone the aggressive route, he had gone the timid route, he had gone the respect Augusta route. And, and, and Rory, I think his star is getting brighter and brighter in terms of how everybody sees him in the media. It's becoming more of a, a wider consensus that everyone seems to like Rory McIlroy and everyone's rooting for him. I don't think it was always like that. I think it, it has gotten brighter and brighter. And and when I saw him walking down the fairway, talking, <laughs> did an interview, I thought, why not? Why not do this? Like, yeah, it's, it's just it's just another game of golf. I thought that's maybe the way he's, he's going at it. I'll just treat this like another game of golf. But, but then actually, any other game of golf does he do that does he be interviewed in between each each shot I, I don't know incredibly rarely and yeah. this is the first time we've done this at the Masters which is such a prestige event and I think a lot of people's feeling was you don't need gimmicks like this to sell the Masters the Masters sells itself yeah. by the prestige of the competition and what was interesting was that on the Friday obviously Rory gave away a bit about his approach and he was respecting Augusta on the Friday at a time when particularly Brooks Kepka was pulling away at that stage yeah. and Ram started to do well too and you're just thinking Rory at this stage you're 8-9 to nine shots behind you're going to have to be aggressive. Yeah. Like you're going out one way or another here by the looks of it. You either go out swinging and get down below par into the weekend or you play timidly and even if you do make the cut you're going to be out of contention anyway. Yeah. And Rory McIlroy's inclination was to play it very safe and very conservative on the Friday and it came back to bite him. So yeah. I don't know. I, I kind of agree with Harrington though. I'm not in the camp where people say he's never going to win a major again. And Harrington says that. He says maybe yeah. he wins a major and that actually lifts all this weight and all the talk and everything will go away if he wins another one. He wins the Open this summer at uh, St Andrews. Maybe it's slightly different then, but I don't know. It's um, it's the, the pressure is mounting because of the time. I think the pressure is mounting because of what Roy did last year as well, where he won both of the Order of Merits and yeah. he became the man of the PGA Tour. The other thing as well, I was thinking on, on the golf, and probably won't have time to go into it, but I thought it was an interesting quote in the middle of it, is that uh, Paul McGinley is interviewed in the 
Daily Mail on Sunday today and he talks about the fact that he would have probably joined Live Golf 10 years ago when he was still an active player on the circuit. He would have seen $20 million as too much to turn down. But now the way he sees it is that the victories in the courts, particularly that the DP World Tour Championship have had, are going to be important because his concern is that if Live Golf continue to sign up elite players, that market might go for young players coming to college to try and make their money. And he still thinks the PGA Tour is the best way to do so. But an admission by Paul McGinley there that you would have probably joined Live Golf 10 years ago had the opportunity been there. Um, there's plenty of other meaty bits across the papers today. And um, one that definitely gets a huge amount of coverage, lads, front and back page today, including to the point that the, the Mail on Sunday are taking credit for saving the Grand National. is actually on the front of the Mail on Sunday today. But on the back, they've serialised the comments which come from AP McCoy. So the context of this is the entry Grand National, three more horses died in the 170 fifth running they were Hill 16 Dark Raven and Envoy Special Hill 16 died after the race after a fall at the first 62 horses have now died at the Entry Racing Festival since 2000 including 16 in Grand Nationals in that period uh, on the track the favourite Cork Rambler won the race Sligo jockey Derek Fox was on board there after the race was delayed by animal rights protesters for around about 15 minutes and AP McCoy was uh, venting his fury as the paper puts it Dominic King's piece on the back of the Irish Mail on Sunday and it was AP McCoy's comments which came on ITV Racing where basically he said they're attention seekers and quote unfortunately we're giving them attention these people don't have any understanding of horses and how well they're cared for end quote and also Lysander Russell who was the winning trainer of Cork Rambler well the co-trainer of Cork Rambler at least um, had said as well it all seems pointless she said it's a real pain in the neck are the protesters doing it for themselves or for the horses Jason I'll let you go first on this one because obviously this has got a tremendous amount of attention the protests that took place they were flagged up early in the week uh, there were discussions I think on Sky News on GB News during the week that this was going to happen and animal rights protesters were saying that they would be trying to bring the most famous steeplechase in the world uh, to a stop uh, yesterday in the end it was a 15 minute break the racing community have very strongly come out and condemned it what's your take on the coverage in the papers of it today? Um, coverage in the papers seems to be definitely in unison with the racing community, just they, you know that they don't maybe, as AP said, that they, they they shouldn't be getting their time. Um, but like it just sets a worrying thing in terms of are we going to get to the stage where a protester is killed here because two of them have tried to glue themselves to a fence, and I know there's been several close calls with things like this where protesters have just been managed to to be evicted from a track just as horses were about to. Come trundling down towards them, you know. So that is the worrying thing. They they probably did get what they wanted in terms of the exposure. Um, you know, I think they used ladders to to gain access to the complex. I've been at entry before, and um, you know, you have to add it to them in terms of how they got in and how they managed to evade all the heavy security and actually get onto the track, given that this had been flagged as a as a potential possibility. Um, I see Ed Chamberlain coming out fighting as well. You know, he's obviously the the main anchor of ITV's racing coverage as well, defending how the horses are treatment and the, the care that they get and the six-star pampering, as he described it, um, you know, in the stables and away from the track and the big racing days and that. And, you know, I suppose it doesn't bode well then when a, a couple of horses do have to be euthanized after the race itself because their injuries are so damaging. But David Walsh made a good point in the in the Sunday Times as well in a brief comment piece. Um, I think it's just inside the sports section. Uh, he obviously wrote it live after the national that maybe just the field is a bit too large in terms of, of 40 that are named initially and then you obviously have your few non-winners but 
Uh, I know a lot has been done in terms of safety for the jockeys and the horses, but the field and the length of the race just seem to maybe getting a wee, maybe are getting a wee bit too stretched. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I'm, I'm, again, I'm no expert on the racing either, but like the protesters did get what they wanted. They, they didn't get the race stopped, but they did get the exposure that they were looking for. They did manage to get onto the track and they managed to get the biggest race in, in the in the in the calendar held up for 15 minutes. So you know. The, the racing purists will say that you know it didn't affect the race itself, but to hold to hold up that race for 15 minutes is a significant achievement. Um, but there's no doubt, like these horses are bred to race. They're not, you know, they wouldn't be here if there was no race. And David made that point as well. Um, so that's that's what they're here for. That's what they're bred for. Um, you know, and they do get huge attention and love and care. And you know, that that has to be considered here as well. So it's a really really tricky debate. It's going to cause a lot of tension and you know a lot of different views and opinions uh, from today and on through the rest of the week as well no doubt so it's a tricky one well yeah I mean Conan I would suggest that the tone is very different from the front of these papers to the back of the papers yeah Jenny what's found in the back 10 pages has been um, a little bit like look Rowe Scott's got his piece which is just across from David Walsh who's in the Times uh, where it's spread across pages two and three and his title is Favourite Rises Above the Chaos and very much feeling of yeah. there was this protest some of the horses may well have even been spooked in the 15-20 minutes before the race and the race took place and we've, there's been a winner of the race in Cork Rambler who he has said was imp- as impressive as Red Rum and he's even got a little piece in here which has been cut from his report 50 years ago when Red Rum won his first one I uh, said that the finish was that strong it actually stands up there with it but that seems to be the feeling from the racing writers, from the commentators, from those who've been interviewed, which is this happened, the race happened regardless, and it was almost a triumph that it took place despite the attempts to stop it. While in the front pages, there's a lot more focus on what's probably coming from the animal rights groups. Yeah, um, I think a lot of the coverage is saying that they're not, they didn't spoil the big day, but they did spoil the coverage of it because, uh, as you say, it, it, it is mentioned all over the coverage. Um, you read it one headline there in the Mail on Sunday, it's Rambler brushes off the chaos. Their back page is a quote from AP McCoy. They don't get racing. The whole back page story is AP McCoy sender attention seekers. So in a sense, it did spoil the coverage, even from a sporting standpoint as well. That, that that's what they were getting into. Um, and yeah, like it's it's a it's a tricky one, as Jason says. It's one I'm almost almost more comfortable talking about Rory McIlroy's psychology than getting into the depths of this. But I do remember doing a couple of pieces um, down with Jessica Harrington down her stables and down with Joseph O'Brien as well, and like j- just being struck because you know coming from Derry, I'm not a big horse racing aficionado, but being struck by the lifestyle learner. I remember coming away from those days thinking, geez, I wouldn't mind getting into horse racing. Like, you know, I, could, I could live every day here in these stables because it was just, an, like when we were down with Joseph O'Brien, the place is covered in snow, but the horses have to be taken out multiple times a day. And and yeah, like they are treated consciously. Like they, they are, there's a lot of deliberate thought into everything about their life as well, like down in those stables. So um, that's one thing that always stuck with me at how, how beautiful the landscape was and how, routine everything was working 365 days a year to make sure that the horses were getting the the treatment that they felt they needed Jason I'll give you a first shout on the Lee Chin 
coverage from today because there's quite a few pieces here. Uh, Mark Gallagher, I think, has written very well on page 62 of the Mail on Sunday. Um, Mick Foley has also covered it in the Times with a kind of a, a wider lens on page 18 around the challenge that's required. And he out, I think he outlines very well that this is not an isolated incident, that it's been about 10 years since Lee Chin first reported that he was racially abused. But he points out a number of incidents in the last year in particular, and even some just a few weeks ago, that this wasn't just an isolated incident at that charity match at the Carrick Swans Club uh, from last week. But pretty strong condemnation of what happened last weekend uh, from both Mark Galler and from Mick Foley today. Yeah, and just, just to kind of start on on Mark's pace, like when you mentioned there that Lee Chen was spoken to about this 10 years ago, like I think the perpetrators in that incident got an eight week suspension. Mm. Um, it kind of speaks for itself and beggars belief. I know if it happens in a GA match now, there's a 40, 48 week ban and 96 weeks for a repeat infraction, but you know, I still don't even think that's good enough. I think any perpetrator something like this uh, inside or outside of the gates of a GA pitch and um, the consequences have to be severe um, in terms of GA I think the perpetrator in question here should never set foot um, at a match again um, you know we've all seen the video there was children present um, kudos to Lee's teammates for, for calling it out straight away and sticking up for him and I know we've all said that you know the incident's getting highlighted because it's Lee of course it is like he's a great fella there's no question about that he's a magnificent role model but Mark's piece highlights the fact that this is now quick becoming a societal issue um, you know there's significant noise coming from which is still thankfully a minority the, the anti-immigration brigade here in this country and that you know there's just big worry over the, the amount of these incidents that are taking place in Ireland outside of a sporting field that are going unreported Um that you know they're, they're happening on the street they're happening in schools they're happening in workplaces and um, you know Mark's piece ties in very well that, that the role of sport can have in, in damaging this and it all starts with education in our schools with young people and education um, you know with young people when, when they're in a sporting environment as well because this just simply is unacceptable like you know the Irish Network Against Racism last month revealed this is in Mark's piece there were 600 races incidents recorded over the course of last year including 136 reports of hate speech that was a rise from 404 such incidents the year before so those are concerning figures and they've quite clearly gone up um you know and it's it's becoming a societal issue and it's an education issue and um in terms of the in terms of ga there should be an absolute no tolerance approach here whether it was lee chin or a junior player um in Kerry or wherever, it's just it's just totally unacceptable. It's disgusting, and um, the video was just horrendous. Um, it was gut wrenching, especially the fact that there were kids present, and that's where that education needs to start to, to show our young people, um, in a sporting context or otherwise, that this this behaviour is just simply not acceptable. Yeah, wider context of this then is that it's only a few weeks ago that the under-15 Republic of Ireland team, a picture was put up and there was abuse online about mm. the amount of black players who were on that team. Uh, there was racial abuse not that long afterwards, I think it was like later in the week, against the Kerry FC players, which also happened online. Uh, the FAI said they were taking an incredibly strong line. They've been working with the Gardaí about that. In the case of this incident, which also followed um, a racist comment being made in a challenge game between the Waterford and Offaly Miners in a hurling game, which resulted in an Offaly player writing an apology and sending it to um, his Waterford counterparts. And then you have this Lee Chin incident happening at the charity game. I was talking to James Gell, who was 
both played against and with Lee Chin on Railway Cup teams. And he said his one takeaway was that Rory O'Connor was incredibly composed, Conan, not to actually strike the guy who had made the comments. Because Rory O'Connor goes over initially to confront him. And then you can hear Lee Chin in the background making the point that there are children right behind him yeah. where these comments have been shouted in the 69th minute of a charity game as well, which makes it to me feel all the more worse that someone would do that in such a circumstance. Yeah. But I asked both Scale and Paul Murphy in the Hurling Pod this week, if even it was the higher end and say the GA said, actually, because of the way this incident happened, we're going to go at 96 weeks, which is the longest possible ban we can end out at the moment. They thought 96 weeks isn't even enough. Yeah. <laughs> Why do we need this person in in 97 weeks time? Like, what, what is anybody gaining from that? I, I think it's ridiculous. I can't wrap my head around it, to be honest. I think you're right. Rui O'Connor... I'm looking for the strong enough word. He's almost a hero for confronting it immediately. Confronting the way he did as well. And Skell said he would have hit the fan. And then this is this is the thing that I'm wrangling with myself. Like you know, to confront him with it to the point that because you want to you want to show your anger, you, you want to show that this is not acceptable. But I think the way he stopped it before he, he hit him was, was like, and he deserved all the kudos in the world. I, we're talking about reported incidents here. Like I played in the game over a decade ago now at a club match and. Uh, one of my teammates was racially abused just in the in the course of an argument and it's all, it's all anybody wanted to talk about then for the rest of the game and for afterwards as well and it didn't go reported because the player didn't want it reported and the game this, carried on yeah right? the game carried on and this is the this is the heartbreaking thing then the player doesn't want that attention brought on him of course he doesn't Like and, and the way that was solved and I don't know if anybody deserves credit here but the manager of the opposing team when he found out about it he dragged his player into our changing room you know, which I suppose in a sense, I don't want to say brave because that's far too kind, but bringing him into the middle of the changing room and making him apologise, it's definitely making a point of him there and then. And it was him trying to deal with it, but almost that's part of the problem as well. It's like, you know, that's it solved now. Like, you know, we've said sorry, let's move on. It's crazy. I, I don't understand how fragile you'd have to be to shout something like that in. I mean, whatever about Sometimes people see these incidents and think, well, fair game. Lee Chin's having an argument with somebody there. Imagine you and I was having an argument in the street. And somebody just started abusing us because of where we were from. Just just standing on the side, just started roaring abuse at where I was from. Me and you, and this is like me and you living in Ireland, there's two white males here, like, you know, so it's not like a, you know, it's not like we're, we're suffering any a great deal in our day-to-day lives. But yeah, I, I can't I can't wrap my head around how that's that's where you reach to. I know people reach to something when they want to, when they want to criticize somebody, but my God, like, what, how is that even a criticism where somebody's parents or somebody's grandparents are from? I, I, I don't understand where, where this, where this is coming from and where this trend is growing and how, and how it's happening, but, but it very much is. Yeah. Um, I say plenty covered, particularly in those two pieces today, uh, on the Lee Chin situation. Um, Jason, I want to ask you about the, uh, bid for Ireland to host, uh, some games at Euro 2028. I'm particularly interested because of Pascal Donahue's comments, uh, which were yesterday, where, it looks like if the Irish government now end up putting money towards Caseland Park as part of the bid, potentially the final bill for Ireland could be somewhere around €96 million Euro in order to host the Games. And Pascal Donoghue is admitting that it might be difficult to actually see even a return on that investment if there was three or four games to be played uh, on the island of Ireland at Euro 2028. I think Paul Rowan has done a pretty interesting piece on this today. Yeah, well, um, fairly interesting from Paul. Um, you know, we must mention as well, from a GA point of view, there was plenty of eyebrows raised when Croke Park were taken off the bed. And I kind of had to smirk uh, when, when it said in Paul's piece that, you know, UEFA didn't want Croke Park um, holding an unglamorous group stage tie with 
only a half full stadium, so they must have been watching the, the Leinster Championship uh, recently. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's um, like it's but it, it could put two hundred and forty million into the economy, which is the other thing. But like the most significant row now, and um, you know, Conan will be well qualified to talk about this too. Is, is the Casement Park tobacco? Obviously, the stadium has been closed for ten years. It's become an absolute eyesore, and it's become. Uh, it's become a metaphorical eyesore for for everybody in, in the Antrim and Ulster GA community, um, and you know it, it looked like that this was going to be the great beacon of light to get it built. But now the DUP rode rode their their oar in and they're objecting that, that the money shouldn't be given to get casement built and it should go towards other services in the north. So this could potentially get messy. Um, you know, you know the the IFA have had to have had to accept that Casement Park would be the venue here as opposed to their own home at Windsor Park as well. And there's that there's that element to things here as well, the the cross border function of the bid, um, along with the FAA. So like there's as Paul rightly points out as well, there's still a lot of um there's probably still a lot of bitterness around here that the Euro twenty twenty games that we were we were all excited to to host. I think it was four fixtures in total never took place here because of our COVID restrictions. And the other chosen cities across the continent still got to host their games as well. So there was an element of of getting big matches to Dublin. But, you know, it even looks like in the current bid that the, the Dublin arena is the idea that's going to be tied up. It's only going to host uh, maybe at best the last 16 tie, four group games and a quarter final. So uh, I know they were hoping to maybe have a semi-final here, especially if Crow Park was part of the bid and maybe even Crow Park to be part of the opening ceremony as well. So it's... It's an interesting one. Um, you know, there's there's going to be a lot of noise about this coming down the tracks as well. And but from a GA point of view, you know, Oak Park's omission was the big thing. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens going down the line. And and it could all be swept completely, brushed away by turkeys. But as well, if they get it when the decision's made later in the year, I think it's due in October or November. I think on the case in point, Conan, uh, effectively a shovel has to win to the ground by summer 2024 to satisfy this bid. That seems a very, very short timeline for a stadium that's been fighting for funding, where there's no real sign that the DUP are going to go back in to reopen Stormont anytime soon. Yeah. And as Jason has just mentioned, you DUP councillors and MLAs across the weekend saying Case and Park should be pretty far down the totem pole of what's important now. Yeah, well, I think anything important is pretty far down the totem pole of what's important when it comes to the DUP, and and this 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 would be important not just for what it would do for for the GA community and for Belfast. Like Antrim is so fractured now, to minute GA wise because of the separation that's happened because they're not playing their games in Belfast, but. But for what it would do for the area, like it, Jason's right to point out to COVID restrictions in in twenty twenty, like that would have been such a big opportunity for for Ireland to show what it could do. Even they have those send the words now proof points to to show like oh look this works. This this is a great festival of football when when it comes here. But like it would actually just rejuvenate that whole area. Then having big international games and like the reality is. Windsor Park wouldn't be fit for it. It's it's not like it, it's not fit for it, and there's no plans. There's never been any petition in it. It's 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 not going to be at the level a Casement Park would be at. It's way off the way for standard. Way yeah. off, and and the problem, of course, is is England. So ideally, this would be a way cooler bid if you had the four associations: the Scotland, Wales, the Northern Ireland Association, and and the Irish one. 
bringing is almost like a, a metal hip and that like he needed but he sort of wish he, he didn't need it you know and and we can't make it up without him and I was I was trying to think can we get can we get 10 stadiums somewhere if you bring in Crew Park Caseman Park the Aviva there's three in Glasgow two in Cardiff that are a mile apart which is probably problematic in itself it's still late we still need to build two more on top of Casement which we need to build so I don't know if um, those the Celtic bid is I, I don't think it's going to happen though so we do need England unfortunately and England don't need the Celtic bid yeah, they really that's need the votes for yeah. really and truly and then of course they had to kind of uh, create this oh, it was almost artificially brought in and it had to be only one stadium per city with the exception of London yeah. so therefore you could have easily had, had Everton's new stadium rejuvenated Anfield um like Glasgow easily has two stadia that could have been used in this bid but yet they didn't want to get into that territory where it would be only a few cities yeah. they had to spread it around to keep everyone happy and therefore Dublin uh, missed out as a result I kind of wonder if Crow Park may well become the fallback if Casement can't be completed and if the bid actually goes through I wouldn't yeah. totally think that it's dead on arrival but that would yeah. be such a big shame for Belfast I think would. even I was looking at Mark Sykes coming through into the Republic of Ireland team and I'm like where are all the other Belfast players? Like, where are they? There's just not a big, long history of, of players from Belfast coming from the second biggest city in the in And the Casement island. needs a financial shot in the arm somehow. Yeah. And this is a possibility for funding to maybe be opened up because it's something bigger than just the project itself. Yeah, exactly. And you've also got potentially support from the UK and Ireland financially to get it done. Yeah. This might be the only way to actually get Casement Park and get a shovel in the ground. Uh, the rugby is where I want to finish up on lads because again this kind of took a life of its own on Thursday uh, with the report that was in the Telegraph and Sinead Kassan I think writes very well page 10 of the Sunday Independent today and Eve English is also writing really well about it on page 61 of the Mail on Sunday about the Ireland women's team and Sinead Kassan has got the headline here the reality is that Ireland are being left behind and she also points out very nicely Conan that it doesn't get any easier for Ireland now after that defeat against Italy they've got the world's second best team in England and the best team in the Northern Hemisphere uh, coming next time round to Cork and it could well be a drubbing they absolutely hammered Wales who hammered Ireland earlier on in the championship Ireland have been conceding tries all over the place and the bigger part of all of this are the whistleblowing reports that come out on Thursday about you know lack of things that have been made available for the women's team some of the measures around say, the blue shorts coming in just being PR as opposed to being something they were consulted about uh, players not receiving information when they've been dropped from squads there's just a general feeling that probably Irish rugby's got a long time a long way to come at a time when their men's team are the best team in Europe right now such a lost opportunity because of that I feel like there, there could have been such easy momentum coming into this tournament off the back of the last tournament um, the the TV rights deals that people are committed to now to showing them um, Sinead's right to point out that England coming to town exactly isn't great to, the fact that it's at home as well in Musgrave Park just makes it worse I think you know England have played three games their points difference at the minute is 170 um, you know like they've played Wales they hammered down Wales here in second place it was 59-3 so this is this is what's facing Ireland now and I'm saying a lost opportunity off the back of what the men have done but it's also a lost opportunity off the back of what the women had done as well like in building themselves into uh, a competitive side and putting themselves into six nations contention and winning them and hosting a rugby world cup it was such an opportunity to push on but they never did and yeah the, the reality is as Sinead says they're so far down the line now it's um it's like night and day with what's happening with the men's team at the minute yeah I mean I look over your shoulder right there the Grand Slam winning team yeah. uh, photo which is just there 10 years ago they weren't invited to the Aviva for the game against England this year which I think was a mistake I think that was a big PR mistake by the RFU and that's something Jason that's brought up on just 
very, very simple points brought up by Aoife in the mail on Sunday, including something as simple as you go to the FEI website right now, you've got a tab for the women's team, a tab for the men's team. The FEI website's been obviously um, covering the women's team extensively because of the World Cup in Australia and New Zealand this coming summer. You go onto the RFU and it feels like the women's team are almost forgotten about. They're not visual when it comes to the actual website. These are small things, but they're certainly a perception for a supporter when they go to look at a website which is hosted by a national governing body. Yeah, and this this is very well laid out. It's it's an Orla McElroy's comment piece under Aoife's match report. Like, and you know, Orla starts off as you mentioned about you go straight to the FEI website, but she finishes up her piece very cleverly by going back to 2017 in relation to the FEI as well. When Katie McCabe was part of that infamous press conference, um, when the Irish women women's team said enough was enough in terms of having to give back here and having to get having to change in bathrooms and you know all of the horrible stuff that they laid out there on the table Kenny McCain was part of that press conference and in July she's going to be leading us out uh, in the World Cup in, in Australia so like did, did the IRFU not learn anything from this and from the complete fiasco that that was only six years ago and now our, our, our football team are going to the World Cup the biggest show on earth they, they ran the States uh, you know they give the states everything to think about on the field the other night in a friendly who you know who are going to the third world cup on the on the trot. And, you know, it just it just beggars belief. Um, you know, Orla finishes finishes off her piece with a very poignant paragraph and she said, just start by treating them like players, it's the least they deserve. So, you know, it's a very well written uh, piece that really, really hits home and it's shocking really a lot of the points that are made. Like that why why should some of these women give up um give up a, a career for a 12 month 15,000 euro contract and um, you know and she just she's nailing down the point that women's rugby is just constantly an afterthought here and you know the fact that she references the end of the piece with that 2017 fiasco in the FEA and Kenny McCabe in particular who's, who's our captain now and is a star player for Arsenal leading Vera Powell's team in, into a World Cup um, with the whole country behind them compared to what's happening with the rugby team and the fact that their their shipping record defeats and going to get a wooden spoon, it's just it's it's very very difficult to comprehend. Yeah, particularly crazy thing. While Liberty Hall was taking place, Ireland would get ready to host the Women's Rugby World Cup. At the previous one, they had finished in the top four. They had beaten New Zealand, who are now the best team of the world right now. And they're watching even Wales and Scotland move further ahead. It was kind of accepted that England and France were gone ahead because of their professionalism. But now the other countries within the Six Nations are starting to leave them behind as well. Lads, it's been an absolute pleasure having a look at the Sunday Papers with you. If you've missed any of the Sunday Paper Review, you can watch it back on our Off The Ball YouTube. And also, if you want to listen to us in audio, form. Uh, you can do so by going to the Sunday Paper Reviews wherever you pick up your podcasts or in the Off The Ball Daily Feed as well. We'll be back reviewing the Sunday Papers next Sunday afternoon.